Welcome to Serving Aces. I'm Alexander Stevenson, and here with me is my special co-host, Oog Levadier, a.k.a. Oogie. Hi, Oogie. Hello, Alexandra. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing today? Very nice. Very nice. You know, we've been off last week. We were both, uh, you know, enjoying Easter Sunday. So you had the, I think you had some problem with the turkey at home or something yes, like that. Well, it was Holy Week. So we had Passover and Easter. And That's our right. special guest who's coming on celebrated Passover. I got to celebrate Passover and Easter with one of my students. We did a Passover with them. And then Samantha, my mom, baked while well, cooked. You can tell I'm not a cook. She made a huge turkey that took forever. So we got a bit <laughs> delayed, but that's okay because today is very special. Actually, tonight, as our guest told me about a week ago, it's like kind of like a nighttime little session we're mm-hmm. going to have right now. And I'm so excited to introduce him. I'm going to give you a little background. He's a journalist for the past 35 years. The old style journalist, ethical, knowledgeable, a keeper of the flame, so to speak. He knows tennis history inside and out and why it's important for us today. He was named a historian at large by the International Tennis Hall of Fame, and he's worked extensively for the Tennis Channel, HBO Sports, CBS Sports, and so many other news publications. It could go on and on. His writing and talking about sports, pop culture, and business has been prolific. I first met him, I think, he might correct me, I feel like I was 17 or 18 years old. I might have been 16. Anyway, may I introduce our first special guest, Mr. Joel Drucker. Welcome, Joel. Thank you. Nice to be with both of you. Nice to see you, uh, Alexandra and Ugi, and, and be with you and be on your show. Congratulations. Excited to to talk about tennis. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on. As you know, in your intro, you are a keeper of the flame of tennis history plus current tennis. And you're just your encyclopedic knowledge is so special. And I feel like today I picked a good topic, as we've had discussions before, about the 1970s tennis boom. And that was your heyday when you were 12 years old, getting into tennis, playing in Southern California, the hard courts of Southern California tennis. Oh, look, is that wow. a, is that a Jimmy Connors racket? That's a Jimmy Connors racket. And, you know, and, we, and I think we met, Alexander, I think we met at a Jimmy Connors staged event at Pebble Beach when you yes. were a teenager in I like think- 95 or 96. And your mom was, Samantha was there covering it. And then I also wanted you to see you're continuing your education about the history of the game. So yes, I brought this racket and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try out some other things in the course of our, our little chat. Yes. So, and wow, that, the and metal one. It's Look at pretty that. cool. And that racket was groundbreaking because Connor showed up with it and everybody was going, what is this metal breaking racket where he's ripping two Hannah backhands? Well, he was the only one to control it. Some people were using it before him or a little older. Like Billie Jean King won Wimbledon twice with it, and others did too. But mm-hmm. he, they all couldn't control it. He knew how to use it. So we'll talk about that when we talk about him yes. later on the show. when but we get into Jimmy Connors. With you guys. Well, I appreciate it. So we got to go into first. I have, because it's so special, and it's a rivalry, rivalry which has not been seen since they retired. 
Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova, or I should say now Chrissy Everett. She goes by Chrissy Everett. And I feel like it's the biggest tennis rivalry ever, but also in sports, it's in the top of all of sports for sure. And the fact that they were two women in the 1970s becoming superstars, Chrissy Everett was already a bit of a superstar, obviously. But then when Martina came on and their matches against each other, they just elevated their stardom so much and it crossed paths with why tennis became so interesting in the 70s. So let's discuss that a little bit. Joel, what are your thoughts? Who were they and their style of game? And why were they so interesting to the viewer? Well, there's a premise that's uh, usually extant in tennis is that your game is an extension of your personality. And you have two people. You have one person who's uh, Chris Everett. She's airtight. She's buttoned up. And she played that way. She was an airtight baseliner and she's right-handed and she's from Florida. And then you have Martina, who's very expressive, who's a left-hander from Czechoslovakia. So you have these two very different personalities in a way. There's also a lot of things they have in common as all champions do some common grounds, but then the way the, the um, conflicts of that, the style contrast, I think what we most enjoy tennis, one of the things we enjoy about rivalries is we hope to see style contrast because that means we're going to see a lot of different points. And they brought plenty. And that's just, just incredible. 80 matches, ups and downs. Yes, Chrissy um, arrived sooner. She's two years older, almost two years older. But also she she rocketed. She got to the semis of the first slam she ever played when she was 16. U.S. Open, right? That's right, 1971. So um, it was just, and then each were very ambitious. They each wanted to be the very best. And so in a way, their rivalry was competition at its best. I'm going to ask you a question. You're going to ask me a question. It goes on and okay. on. I, I love it. And Ugi, he he loves a good strategy. So he's really going to like the contrasting styles of Martina and Chrissy. That's and right. when Martina came, it was emotional period because she was defecting from Czechoslovakia. It was she, at, right. at the she time. Defe- she defected after losing a semifinal match to Chris Everett at the 1975 U.S. Open. And so- she... And yeah. she came to America, wanted to become American citizen and was just went wild. So she was used to com- communism, you know, not having a voice, being stuck. She wasn't out as gay yet. And she came out on the scene and just played with abandon. <laughs> so and then well, she'd been and she played and she'd been playing for a, a couple of years as a Czech. Yeah. She yeah. I mean, she was number four in the world when she defected so yeah and then she became she comes to america and and is looking to make a name for herself even yeah. more did she stay did she stay here in 1975 after playing in u.s you better believe she's, it yes yeah. wow so she's playing, playing a tournament in the u.s and then she says okay i'm gonna stay here i'm not gonna go back and so that's the best way out right i mean you're not you don't have to defect well, no, from she, home you're, just, you're she here thought about it she came she first began playing the tour in about late 73 early 74 and she did quite well rapidly. I mean, she really yeah. rose pretty quickly. Big super and, athlete. And uh, and then sometime around 1975, she was feeling a little bit under the thumb of the Czech regime. And she pondered mm-hmm. when she was going to defect, seek asylum. And so she finally took that step. Imagine, though, doing that at 18. That's so young. That, that is so amazing. And then there she was, 18 in the U.S., um, 
she was living for a little while in uh, in Beverly Hills after she did that and practicing and based out of Los Angeles. And she had a check car with a license plate that said X check. Oh, that's funny. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, wow. for my generation, the what we saw was the Chinese players. So Lee Na and all the other Chinese players that never really defected, but Lee Na got her freedom. But mm-hmm. that was in 2000. So it was a bit different, although similar because China is very tough and it's hard to get out of China. But at that time for Martina to do that, that was so brave. And I know she had a lot of help, but that's one of the things I admire about her is she just, she left her country and she made a new life. And she was a pioneer for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's totally different how Chrissy was brought up to how Martina was brought up, but yet they had the same goal as wanting to be number one in the world. They were very ambitious. I mean, you know, we've both been around them a fair amount. I mean, we've each, uh, you've worked with Chrissy at ESPN. I've worked with Martina Tennis Channel. You see, they're both very driven people. Yes. And I played doubles I- with Martina when she had her comeback. Did you really? How many tournaments? Wow. Did you oh, you only lasted once. She got really mad because I was fresh on the tour. And I feel like I could have been developed, but she didn't have time to develop. You know, this was like a one-year thing. And we, we lost to a good team, and she just was not happy with me. And I was so nervous. I didn't really play my game. And we played in Sydney, Australia. Well, things happen with teams. It's okay. Yeah, it was tough. You know, doubles is tough. It's it's a combination. And it just, I wish I had been more prepared and more mature. But at that time, an 18-year-old, like, oh, my gosh, I'm playing with Martina Navratilova. I just was all over the place. <laughs> yeah, how could you? You were, you were off high school. You know, you just graduated yeah. high school. Yeah. Well, I have to talk another thing, Joel, about them. Okay, so 60 finals. 60 of the matches were in finals. 14, am I getting this right? 14 were Grand Slam titles. Finals. Martina won 10. Chrissy only won four. Okay. And in the beginning, Chrissy beat Martina because she was the steady baseliner. As Ted Tingling said, who I love, we have to discuss him a little bit because he was big in the 70s with fashion and how he dressed the women players it was like watching a washing machine like she was so boring and he he was dying to dress her to make her more appealing and stuff yeah well she was a, you know she was the girl next door she was beautiful but he wanted to make her more fashion fashionable and flashy and she just would not be dressed by ted tingling because he did wide boat collars and she didn't like mm. the wide collars and Martina was exciting and serving volley. And so when Chrissy won in the beginning, it's the offense versus defense, right? As the offensive player, you have to learn how to play the defensive player. And usually in the beginning, the defensive defensive player wins. Well, but also it's interesting about Chris Everett. I've gone through many phases. I grew up in Southern California on fast, hard courts, and I was a left-hander wanting to come to net. So Martina's game had instant appeal for me. And mm-hmm. only as I think, I think Chris Everett's game is for adults. You need to understand the real genius of it. And you see, she created the modern game. She created the way tennis is now played. I could show you a line between Chris Everett and Novak Djokovic. Balance, posture, I like that. footwork, sustained cross court. And also, I know what you mean about offense and defense. And look, you were, you were 18 in the world. So you, you saw it at a much higher level than I could even imagine. However, when someone like Chris Everett, I, ta- I did a story on her a few years ago. And I talked about 
six to 10 people she played. When someone hits one ball an inch inside your baseline, you hardly notice. When they hit two, that gets your attention. When they hit three or four or five, is that defense? I mean, she was applying pressure in her way. Defensive mm-hmm. pressure. pressure. Well, sustained baseline consistency. And I think- Well, I like that. I like that sentence. About applied, applying pressure. I mean, when you're hitting a ball, when you're fielding balls that are three inches inside your baseline, who's, who's defense? What's the, now, Tinling's concern, Martina fit in with the way the game had been played prior to Chrissy. Yes. Billie Jean King, Rosie Casals, um, Sir Volley. You know, they until 1970, chip charge, three of the four, one-handed backhands, three of, four ma- three of the four majors are being played on grass. So it was all forward movement. But Everett brought in the two-hander, which, which is a total game changer, mm-hmm. one of the biggest game changers in the history of the sport. And that created the template for how a lot of the game is played today. I mean, you know, you could draw the line from Chris Everett to Tracy Austin to Lindsay Davenport, yes. Mary Pierce. Yeah. And Chrissy Everett, we're going to talk about Cliff Drysdale in the second segment, but the two-hander wasn't popular, like you said, on the men's tour either. So It was considered eccentric. And that's so interesting because now it's, as Ugi will attest, how many coaches really are teaching the one-handed backhand? And, and yeah, we, don't teach, we don't teach it at first for sure. I mean, we want kids to be like on the side. So when they turn, when they get ready, both hands on backhand for sure. And then we can transform them into one hander. Yeah. So, so it's kind of around, been, so. it's kind of in a lost art form right now in 2023. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh yeah. Well, the the one hander, I guess if you're a teacher, you, you teach the two hander then you maybe teach them to use the one handed slice similar to what Matt's V-Lander did in the eighties. And they can draw on the slice if they need to, if they're stretched out, mm-hmm. make it mm-hmm. up do a few other things, but the two-hander, I mean, look, you're a coach, um, serving volley to a one-hander compared to a two-hander. Come on. I mean, you serve volley versus a one-hander that better be a really good one-hander. It's much tougher to to get ready for the return. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. The return, the serve volley, the volley, the slice, everything. I I had a two-hander until I was nine and then i i got switched so i started out with a two hand backhand so the 80 by the 80s because of Christy Everett, cliff drysdale by the 80s everybody was teaching two handers well it was just easy to take up cuz the little kid with a racket you just pick up the racket and presto yep and i bet you had a great two hander i did i did robert lancert was very upset that i switched but he spent his every friday he spent honing my one-hander to make it good and and complaining all the way though saying i should have a two-hander but you know what i have i have a pretty good one-hander oh come on it was awesome it was awesome we gotta talk a little bit before i go off this topic ted tingling and how important he was to women's tennis just in fashion and i know you are two guys but i find this so interesting that in seven in the 70s the fashion really mattered, especially in women's tennis, to try to sell matches and the Virginia Slims because that was when that was coming in. 1970 was when it was formed. Gladys Heldman helped form it. Obviously, Billie Jean King, the original nine. I I played at Gladys Heldman's indoor court in New Mexico. Got hey, a little connection there. Very yeah, nice. Very, it was a very cool court, I have to say. I think I was 11 or 12. When I went there, my mom went to do a story on her. And 
I was so, I met Ted Tinling before he died, but I was so sad when I turned pro, I didn't have a Ted Tinling dress because it, it just, it brought coolness to women's tennis. What do you think, Joel? Absolutely. Well, look, the 70s are to tennis, what the 60s are to rock and roll. The 70s are when tennis goes technicolor, when it comes out of the white balls and the white clothes. And it, I think... I think as like as recently as 1970, 71, there may be seven tennis events on TV in America. Five or six years later, there are like more than 70. Mm -hmm. And the game, the beginning of open tennis in 1968 really takes the game to a whole level of crossing over. And, and then yep. of course, in the broader world, you have the world going technicolor, you know, rock and roll. And 1967, you have like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So the whole world is going more color. And so hmm. tennis, tennis kind of fit right in with the culture then. And you look at those dresses that the um, the Virginia Slims tour was wearing. And Ted Tinling, he he went back. He was buddies with Susan Longlong. Yeah, so he, he went back to nineteen forty seven, the forties and the fifties. Yeah, way back, way and back. And Gussie Moran when she wore the lacy underwear oogie at Wimbledon, and everybody went nuts. I think that was in the fifties. And all he did was he put handkerchief lace on her um, tennis underwear. Wow, funny? nice touch. Yeah. Like so that. he spanned decades too. And I feel like you could do endless stories on him and what he did. But I, the article that I loved you sent me, we got to touch on this as we go into the next segment. But the summer of 75 that you wrote um, when Arthur Ashe, Richard Burton, and Jimmy Connors collided. So where do we begin? You want to well, you you talked about how tennis went into pop culture and it was technicolor. I mean, how pop culture is Arthur Ashe, Richard Burton, and Jimmy Connors? Well, that's just a, that's just great, and that's where tennis is going in the seventies, where people like Ashe and Everett and King, their tennis is becoming cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's tennis was pretty nerdalicious before the 60s, the late 60s and 70s. And, and country club. And country club and right, not taking it to the streets in a way, tennis and running are the first two sports of the fitness boom of the late 60s. Do your own thing and, and people seeking exercise and tennis was cool. And you had the Virginia Slim Circuit starting. This will segue into our talk about WCT and pro mm -hmm. tennis. And tennis was kind of the, the right sport in the right time and the right place. I mean, tennis became... Cool. And it was doing things both at the high level, at the pro level, to make it accessible with more matches on TV, yellow balls, um, rackets that made it easier to play. And then at the lower levels, people were drawn to it. They wanted to get exercise and tennis seemed kind of a cool way to get exercise. Now, of course, they later didn't realize that as cool as it is to get exercise, you got to be skilled. And it takes, <laughs> like a, a friend of mine once said, it takes three years to become a crappy tennis player. Yeah, that you told me that. And I was like, wait, what? And then I started thinking about it. And I went, you're kind of right. I mean, to get the technique, the footwork, the timing, unless you're a natural athlete, it's really difficult. What natural athlete is still going to know the serving grip? Yeah, I mean, look, Michael Jordan had trouble playing tennis. Yeah, I heard that. I always, I, don't, we, don't we all as tennis people take a little... Enjoy knowing that. Yes. He, As opposed he, to knowing, yeah, Michael, he just walked into tennis and, you know, within about a week he was hitting kick serves. You know, I, I had a friend who's a basketball player who's my age. And look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a four or five player. And he told me, he mm -hmm. goes, uh, I'm tired of playing basketball and getting my ankle stepped on. I'm going to play tennis. I'm going to, I'm going to get a racket this weekend and six months. I'm going to be going after you. I go, 
six months. I go, what makes you think in six months you're even going to get the key in the ignition? <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and what happened? Did he play with you a little bit? And I'm not playing with that guy. He never, no, he, I think <laughs> he, he saw, he, he saw. Um, Spoken like a true tennis player. I'm not play, playing with that schlub. No <laughs> way. He never, he, I don't think he ever, I don't think he picks it up because you see soon enough that it's not easy. I mean, what's, there's not a lot natural. No, it's hard. Sideways and hit a ball on the run. Okay, so we we got to go back to your article, Arthur Ashe, Richard Burton, and Jimmy Connors. So tell me the meet cues that Richard Burton had with Arthur Ashe. So Arthur Ashe is playing the WCT Pro Tour in early 1975. He's with his buddy, Freddie McNair, and they're traveling through the, that swing of the tour went through all the neat parts of of Europe, particularly like Bologna and the Riviera. And they're at this hotel, I believe it's in Nice. And they see, and suddenly they hear a voice, Richard Burton. So for those who might know, this is like the actor. And he had the booming voice, this accent goes, and suddenly hears this, yeah, Mr. Ash, Mr. Ash. And it's Richard Burton. He wants to meet uh, Arthur Ash and he talks. And, um, and he says to, and they start chatting about tennis and how Richard Burton admires Arthur Ash. He says, who is this young man, Mr. Connors? And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he goes, well, he's, he's pretty good. Oh, he's impish. And, you know, cause Jimmy Connors then was kind of like uh, very expressive and kind of like a new kind of tennis. And, and Burton goes, well, I think you're better than him. And Ash says, well, he's, he's pretty good. He's beat me all three times we've played. I, you know, he's pretty good. And Burton goes, well, tell you what, the next time you play him, I will bet on him and it'll be the best bet I ever lose. It's like Michigan, he's making a grand theatrical statement. So this is February, maybe March. Months go by. Arthur Ashe reaches the finals of Wimbledon. And he's a big underdog against Jimmy Connors. And, um, and, and, but believe it or not, amazingly, and that's a whole other story. He upsets Jimmy Connors, one of the biggest upsets in tennis history. But wait, Amazing. you got to tell the little bit about the night before the dinner and the you meeting. The okay. This is a really good coaching thing that the players oh, yeah. did for him. The night before he's supposed to play Connors, they meet at Trader Vic's in London. It's Donald Dell, who's Ash's close friend and agent, Charlie Passerell, who's his even closer friend going back to college days at UCLA, and Freddie McNair, who'd been traveling with him all year and his kind of a, a buddy, an excellent player also. So they gather at this table and they start thinking, okay, what do we got to do with Connor? Speaking three times. Arthur Ashe was more or less like a slash and burn player. He liked to hit big serves, crack volleys, I mean, yeah. backhands. You know, he was a, he, you know, he was a you know, three-shot player. And they said, oh, wait, here's what you got, Arthur. Let's figure this out. Okay, you do have a great wide serve in the deuce court. And Connors has got this two-handed backhand grass. So you hit the wide one in the deuce court. Connors likes hitting the ball on the run, working off pace. Does it, Maybe he's a little, a little less good at generating pace, particularly off his forehand, because he had the straight back, you know, the straight back backswing with the T2000. It was kind of straight. It wasn't quite a, a loop. And yeah, there's no loop for him. He's just going straight back and straight forward. On yeah, but of course there. Is, I mean, yeah, it's it's not it's not a lot of energy building in the shape of the stroke. Mm-hmm. So why don't you give him nothing on that side and hit it down the middle, kind of nothing again and again. So they hatch this plan, and and then and and use the wide deuce serve and come to net. And in the rallies, you're just going to hit it nothing, slice backhands middle, nothing, nothing. And so they get out there. And one thing also helps, and you know this, Alexander, since you played Wimbledon, two o'clock is a righty. Not a great time with the sun, is it? No. Yeah. Overcast that day at Wimbledon. So oh. Arthur Ashe 
He's got the, it's like, wow, it's over. It's on his side. Right. Wins the first two sets, 6 1, 6 1, and 41 minutes. It's like 241. Wow. This is already up one and one. Like, what's going on here? And then he, he counters, wins the third set, goes up 3 1 in the fourth. And the question is, does Arthur Ashe, who'd always played another way, he came out with the winning plan, but now the winning plan isn't working. So it's always the challenge, isn't it, Oogie? If you change, mm-hmm. I need to just stay with this, I need to execute it. And he ends up winning five of the last six games. And there's a shot, you know, there are all these famous championship points. And I don't know if you guys have seen it. Arthur Ashe at the last point of the match, slice serve wide in the deuce court to Jimmy Connors. Connors barely gets his racket on the return. And Ashe has, a, has an overhead that even my... Uh, my friend, the basketball player, could have made. Yes, I've no. seen that point. <laughs> yeah, you've seen that point. Uh, and, and you have the BBC guy. He's done it. He's done it. He really has. Yeah. And and, I, and it's very popular. There's a lot of, there's a whole backstory about Ash and Connors and the ATP and tennis politics. They were not exactly BFFs. Yeah, and Connors was not playing um, Davis Cup at the time. A whole series of subtexts. So it was a huge win. Right. And then Arthur follows it up by going back to the hotel. Oh yeah, he goes to the hotel. He's he's up all night. He's and he gets a note to see this bellman who's been helping him. And the bellman says, uh, "Someone wants to meet you at this other place for breakfast the next morning." The breakfast the next okay, next morning. So he goes to this hotel on like a few a minimal sleep. And who's there? Richard, Richard Burton. Burton. Yeah, amazing. Is that amazing. so cool? That is so cool. Now, was Elizabeth Taylor with him at that time? I don't think, I don't know where they were at in their thing. You know, it's hard enough to keep track of coaching relationship. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I don't think it was Dick and Liz at that. I mean, I don't know if they were, they may have been a couple of times. I lost track because they got remarried. Yeah, but in the movie world, I mean, I know we're in the tennis world, but in the movie world, I read that article. I just loved it because Richard Burton followed through. How often does that not happen? And they were, and Richard Burton, you mentioned Elizabeth Taylor. They were the, uh, they were Brad, they were the Brad Pitt, Angelina oh, Jolie of their time. They were huge. They couldn't go anywhere. Talk about rock star, movie stars. Right. They were it. So right. that uh-huh. was, that was one of my favorite articles of the seventies that you wrote, even though it wasn't in the seventies, but that was a great story, Joel. So I, let's. I was a teenager when that match happened. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So let's go into. Cliff Drysdale and the Handsome Eight, WCT, Lamar Hunt, and then a little bit on the Virginia Slims we got to touch on. But I thought this was so interesting that Lamar Hunt was football and he came into tennis to disrupt tennis or help tennis. Disrupt, you know, it's funny we use that term now. Yeah, do you say disrupt or do you say help? I think to grow tennis, to change tennis. I like, I like that word and Lamar I mean, Hunt in 1960 he was the prime founder of the America American Football League he was he owned the Kansas City Chiefs and he along with several people founded the AFL mm-hmm. Hunt helped um through some to little- tell our Canadian friends just even though they love football just in case they don't know the history so he um a guy named Dave Dixon forms wants to get involved in tennis and Dave Dixon is the one who first forms the handsome eight and he signs several top amateurs along with a couple of guys who are already pro. one professional um well dennis ralston and butch buckholtz were pros at the oh time. they yeah. were pros okay they were pros at the time and they formed this thing called the handsome mate and they're going to form like a, a pro tour of sorts that's going to start around early 68 around that same time a number of things happened open tennis was going to happen mm-hmm. and so 
but the handsome eight was a pro circuit. Dave Dixon is a little learns he's a little overextended, both operationally and financially. One of his one of the people he knew, there's a guy named Al Hill Jr. Al Hill Jr. was a guy who played tennis at Trinity and was a kind of a friend around pro tennis, a reasonable player, but not a great player. And somehow he brought this to the attention of his uncle, Lamar Hunt. This is, oh, hey, an opportunity in the world. There's a connection. Wow. And so Lamar Hunt pretty much takes over uh, the handsome eight. And the handsome eight eventually morphs into something even bigger called World Championship Tennis, WCT, which is the first really full-fledged pro circuit of of men, of men that starts around 69, 70. It becomes a big deal for several years in the early 70s. Three tours going all over the world, events in places like Charlotte and Tokyo and everywhere, culminating in a great eight-man playoff every May in Dallas. That was arguably that eight-man playoff is more important than the Australian Open or the French Open. That was at the time. Right. Well, I know in the French Open, when it first they first formed it, none of the handsome eight showed up, but they showed up at Wimbledon and nobody knows why. Well, there are a lot. You know, it's funny. I thought I was going to be a political science major because I think tennis then was political science. It still is now, as we know. We know this now, you know, as a player, Alexander, and you know, you've seen things, but it was even more than, I mean, the game was open in 1968 and it's kind of like a land grab. And what's mm-hmm. a pro and what's still an amateur? They had this mm-hmm. thing called registered players. And who do you play for? Who are you responsible? Who are you accountable for? Do you have to play Davis Cup or Fed Cup? Who? Wh- what's your autonomy? And all these people, promoters and sponsors and, and players and agents, and everybody's kind of figuring out where did it, what, what are all, how do all these pieces fit together? Are they going to fit together? Yeah, it was it, what you said, a land grab. Lots. And what was, so, I also found this fascinating. Bud Collins, the famous tennis analyst, Boston Globe reporter, journalist, writer of all things tennis. He was giving the rankings. He was one. There were many. One of them. That there would... were many people. There were panels of writers that would give rankings and the computer as you. So it wasn't ITF, WTA. Well, the ATP hadn't formed yet. We're going to go into that. The but ATP forms its ranking in 73. In 73. But computer. Right. Before that, it was journalists who were doing the ratings. That's right. That's right. And the, and the result of that was they pretty much only got the top 10 and the national associations would rank their own players. But I, I doubt if there was anyone, any journalist determining who was 18 or 27 or 30. Yeah. What so, happened to the rest of them? They were, they showed up at tournaments. They, they through their national association applied for entry to tournaments. Oh, and seating okay. was kind of random and draws were kind of a little vague and uncertain like how are some of these draws happening and why were certain people playing and then some of these tournaments you know these amateur in the pre-open era these amateur fields weren't exactly deep i mean this one player was telling me once about how back in his day in the 30s and 40s he was playing all around the world and he was playing singles and doubles i said yeah mm-hmm. but at some of these tournaments weren't you playing me in the first round <laughs> well that's not enough for not sure fair. you're four or five joel <laughs> Thanks. But, you know, they were just, they were like someone, they'd fill out the draw with someone from the club. Oh, yeah. that's so interesting. That, at the country club, they just go, oh, here you go. Well, so then 1973, well, 1970, we have to go and Virginia Slims then came around and they formed their own tour. And Gladys Hellman helped that, helped that as I spoke about that, the original nine men. So you had the handsome eight women and the original nine, sorry, the handsome eight men and the original nine women. 
That's right. The handsome eight men, though, were more of a, I think that's a promotional vehicle. The original nine women, they had a cause. I mean, they- And they they were the core. Yeah. And they also had, they had a meaning. They they wanted uh, appropriate compensation. They wanted Cirque. They became a league of their own, as it were. Yeah. And Jack Kramer was definitely against them. Well, he wasn't, it's not that he was necessarily against them as much as he, the tournament he was running, the Pacific Southwest Open at the LA Mm -hmm. Tennis Club, he let the woman know initially what the prize, the prize money ratio was wild. It was like eight to one and no money unless you reach the quarterfinals. And the woman such as Billie Jean King and Rosie Casals, Nancy Richie said, hey, wait a second, what's going on here? And they went to Gladys Helman and Gladys said, tell you what, we'll run our own tournament. We'll have our own tournament, our own, the Virginia Slims Invitation. And that's how it started. That's how it started. And Jack, it's not that he was against the original. I was like, good, go, go make your own, go, go form your own league. Go ahead. Just don't expect me to give you money for my event. Yeah. Well, that so. makes sense. And so interesting that a cigarette company was sponsoring women's tennis. Well, one of the interesting, perfect, this is where Gladys Hellman and a series of events occurred that are fantastic, remarkable, perfect storm. Gladys Heldman was an incredible go-getter. And she was based world tennis in New York City through the 50s and 60s. She was selling ads and she got to know, one of the people she got to know was the CEO, Philip Morris, Joe Coleman. And in the course of, um, so this is all through the 60s. In fact, they had an award at world tennis called the Marlboro Award. And they would run ads in world tennis. So now it's 1970. And, oh, she brings Marlboro to sponsor the big electronic scoreboard at the U.S. Open in 1969. Now it's 1970, and this is often forgotten, but it's determined that as of January 1st, 1971, no more cigarette advertising on television. So now Philip Morris has this brand, Virginia Slims, which debuts in 1968 with the famous ad campaign, You've Come a Long Way, Baby. Mm -hmm. The cigarette brand is about two years old, and they're looking to gain traction with women. And now they have this money that they can't buy advertising time on television. Where do we put that money? Presto, women's tennis. And the circuit, which was three events at the end of 1970, like just kind of like a little pilot test. It's Houston and a couple of others. Then in 1971, it becomes a full-blown circuit. It's like more than 300000 in prize money all over America. So it was the perfect two roads coming together and opening up the start of women's tennis. The women's pro tennis as we know it. That's absolutely... Yep. And there's no, so there's no WTA without Virginia Slims. Oh, of course not. And there's no ATP in a way without the WCT. Yes. Because this is like the men, the, this is the beginning of the players saying, hey, wait a second. We're not just at the mercy of the club letting us play in the tournament or the committee. We're accountable to the marketplace and to fans and spectators. And so the WCT became... But Jack Kramer at the helm, Cliff Drysdale, Arthur Ashe, Donald Dell, Jim McManus, who we've referenced before, they lobbied the players to collect $100 to form the ATP. That's pretty much that's pretty much how it well, In layman's terms, without yeah. getting complicated, to start no, the tour. Go, we're not going to go no. poli-sci dissertation. Exactly. Yet. And then Arthur Ashe was the treasurer in 73, and he started adding 20% to all the prize money checks to make the ATP tour bigger. Well, the ATP wasn't quite the tour then. At that point, it was a players association. It wasn't necessarily, the t- it wasn't the ATP tour. It didn't become the ATP tour until 99. That's a whole other. That's a whole nother thing with Harold. I've heard that story before. 
<laughs> Hamilton Jordan and all that. Yes. Uh, but so, but they founded the ATP. It just wasn't tour. The ATP, well, the ATP, the, the, the ATP was found on the point that Charlie Pastorell was telling me this. Charlie, he said, look, promoters are coming in, the tournaments are running, the associations. What's the player voice in this? We need to have a voice. Yes. And that was so important. That's and right. It, it, ATP, for everybody that doesn't know, is Association of Tennis Professionals. And this is so funny because when I coach, I call myself a professional tennis player. I don't say I'm a tennis professional because there's two parts, tennis professionals and professional tennis players. And all three of us know that if you're a tennis professional, you're like a somebody that's coaching at a club or it just hasn't been a professional tennis player. It's just different. But I found this very interesting that Djokovic, because now we're talking 2020, 20, now what, I don't know where he's going with this, but he's trying. His name is the PTPA, Professional Tennis Players Association. So he didn't vary that much, but he switched it. That is interesting. Well, and he wants to recreate that would happen. The ATP eventually morphed into a, a mix of both management and labor, a, a merging of yes. tournament directors and things. This happens in 1990. And then Novak has been lately saying with the PTPA, hey, a voice for the players yet again, almost more closer to some sort of association or even more union. benefits, more, more help, Amenities. you know. If you're top 200 in the world, you're not making a lot of money. Even if you're top 100 in the world, it's rough. So I understand his side of it. It'll be interesting. And he he brought in another NFL guy, Ahmed Nassar. He was former president of NFL. So it's kind of funny how history repeats itself a little bit. A little bit in different ways, yeah. Different ways. And then you have the Virginia Slims going in the WTA tour and and how that's advanced and – WTA tour is so interesting because women's tennis is one of the best sports for women to play. Is it, isn't it the best? It's the most lucrative by far. The most lucrative by far, but you still, you could be playing and not making enough to come out ahead at the end of the year. Well, you would know that, you know that better than any of us and you understand the economics and the challenges mm-hmm. of making a go at being a, a professional tennis player. And, you know, it's, it's funny, the team sport players, they, they all have appearance fees. They all have salaries. Yeah. They can sit on the bench and still make money. And this gets to the, um, this gets to the market value of how the sport is organized and who pays to watch tennis, a whole lot of economic questions about popularity. And, and I mean, look, they're red heart, they're heart only four times a year. Are there even 128 jobs in in tennis? Yeah, four mm-hmm. times a year. And the same for when you start to think about commentating. If you commentate on ESPN, it's only twice a year. <laughs> so it's now only Wimbledon US, uh, US Open. Oh, but yeah. I, I got to add in one more thing before we go into rock and roll, Jimmy Connors. Okay, I read the other story you sent me to the ends of the earth, and I loved it love and loss of the U S open and you paralleled Jimmy Connors and your lovely wife, Joan. And you guys used to watch the CBS highlight show at 1130 at night, right? right. Or 1130 in the day, 1130 night. at night. Now, was it a CBS highlight show just for tennis? Yes. This was during the U S open that they had, this was a CBS highlight show Okay, during the U S open. And, and it was, and it went when I was even younger, before I met my wife, 
It was 15 minutes. That was the only tennis during the U.S. Open during the weekday. That was it. Stay up till 11.30. And the fun part for me was also the one of the, the analysts was my tennis camp director, Tony Trabert. Yes. Who taught me, by the way, for what it's worth, I'm, I'm no, I'm no Kalamazoo player, but I do, I can hit, I have a nice, I have a reasonable Southern California topspin backhand. I can hit the topspin backhand, hit the slice, but Tony taught that the low to high backhand. And um, Tony was, so Tony was one of the analysts and I would stay up to watch 15 minutes of highlights. In 81, they expanded to 30 minutes. And then eventually USA Network gets into the mix. And they got into it. And then but that- before that, in the 70s, it, tennis was still so popular just from people going to the tournaments because they were not watching on television like we do now. Well, CBS was on the weekends. CBS on the weekends, okay. CBS had a night, several hours on the weekends. And, and of course, hmm. particularly the semis and the finals. So but was the- it kind of like the Ed Sullivan show where everybody would gather around and watch? Like it was a big deal? It's, it was important viewing. There's a scarcity. For what it's worth, Wimbledon, breakfast at Wimbledon, Wimbledon was on tape delay until 1979. I did not watch a live- I didn't know that. Until 1979. The first breakfast at Wimbledon was 1979. It was a big deal and it comes on, I guess that would have been, um, yeah, 6 a.m. Uh, Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yeah, but before that, like that Ash Connors match, I watched that on tape delay. Wow. So see, yeah. another thing in the 70s brought us in 79 was breakfast at Wimbledon. Yeah, because the game is going big. The game is going rock and roll. And again, we talked about numerous people, the Everett Navratilova rivalry, which is blossoming. But I think no one, no one was more the first tennis rock star, kind of the Elvis than Connors. Well, that's leading us into our next segment, Joel. Jimmy Connors, Rock and Roll Tennis, Friday Night at the Fight, your book, Jimmy Connors Saved My Life, published in 2004. Everybody can go on and get it on Amazon, correct? Yes. It's, yes. yes you use copy on Amazon. Yes. And you told your lovely wife, Joan, that you were going to write a book on Jimmy Connors in 82. Was that in 82? Yes. So I- that truly everybody listening if you put something in your brain and you visualize it like a good tennis player you can make it happen because look at what joel did he didn't know how to get into tennis you weren't doing tennis in 82 you were playing tennis no but i I was writing i'd started to write writing i'd started to write in 82 i'd been writing some articles and i had a chance i can't i had this i wrote a college i wrote this college paper about connors that was timed and he got to read it, and I, I got, I got an interview with the Wimbledon champion a month after graduating college. Oh, that's right. You told wow. me that story where you got cool. went to the club and met him, and yeah, and then and you got in. A, a former camp counselor of mine, Dave Engelberg, who's still a good friend. He helped get me in touch with Connors. I mean, I feel very fortunate growing up in Southern California, kind of the Ivy League of tennis sections. Yes, you that Alexander, because you. You, you're well, a, you got we'll it. have to do a whole separate podcast on that one. <laughs> Southern California, the people that have come out of tennis. But any of us who are from it, you get exposed to the game. You do. At a very high, neat level. I mean, I'm having my rackets strung at the same place as Jimmy Connors, Tony Trabert, and Jack Kramer, you know, it's in, in Westwood. So that's kind of neat. Uh, yeah. Rick at Westwood, he's now who that's he right. took it over. His dad used to run it, but yeah. I started after bill retired rick strung my rackets from the time i was 14. there you go there you and go. i go by i just picked my rackets up there oogie on friday cash a checker cash cash only it's a 1950s uh old cash machine take a check i'll take a checker yeah. wow. no Ca- credit yep no credit it's old school 
and and he's the best prices in town. He's the best guy. I send all my kids to Rick. Okay, so there we go. So we got yep. the street. But the thing, so so all these things helped me get to know Connors. And in the summer of 82, around the time I got involved with my wife, I said, one day I'm going to write a book about him. And this will explain to people what this sport is really about. Because yep. people think tennis is like a Merchant Ivory movie sometimes. They think it's like a little dainty thing. And like it's really not. Weird. It's good, fellas. Yeah, it's total. And Connors was the first one to embrace it. And his coaches were his grandmother and his mother. So talk about power to women. Again, we're talking about now trying to get more women coaches on the tour and involved. And look at Jimmy Connors. Gloria oh, yeah. and his grandmother raised him. You know, his mother played Forest Hills. His mother was um, was 11 in the country in the 18s. She's a good player. And the story, one of the stories I love, though, in Connor's book, I didn't learn this, I read his book about 10 years ago. The grandmother's a pretty good player. And when the grandmother, the grandmother and, so the grandmother, Bertha, and the daughter, Gloria, they were each playing. They played each other in a tournament when Gloria was 15 in, like, Kansas City. It's called the Heart of America. And, you know, Kansas City is this intense humidity, just tournament. They made the semis. The grandmother just double bageled the daughter. Oh, I love it. Competition at its core. That's no right. pity. Boom. I have a great Jimmy Connors story for you, Joel. Okay. So my mom was covering Forest Hills in the 70s. And she was sitting up at the veranda. She was, I forget I think who was she was working for. Maybe Sport of the Times. Sport. And Sport magazine. Sport magazine, yes. And she was sitting there drinking iced tea, taking a break. And who sat next to her but this lady and just started talking to her. And she proceeded to tell my mom, who was 20-something, well, you have to put your kid in tennis. And my mom didn't have a kid at the time. Tennis is a great sport. You learn life lessons. It'll make an athlete. You really need to do this. And my mom said, okay, thank you. I'll remember that for when I have a um, a child. And she got up and she asked her, and she goes, I'm Samantha Stevenson. And she goes, oh, hi, I'm Gloria Connors. Oh, and that's great. my mom was sent to cover Jimmy Connors and Chris Everett and all these, but she didn't know Gloria to her face because, you know, we didn't have, so, they didn't have social media, Instagram, all that. And so she had a whole conversation with Gloria Connors. So then fast forward, she gets pregnant with me. She remembers the conversation. She puts me into tennis at three. And then by then she had worked at world tennis and she had started instilling the history of the game already. And then we go to Pebble beach, not where I met you when he did, maybe it was where I met you because then my mom did a New York times story on Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe It was the only joint yeah. interview. So that yeah. had to be when they were doing their exhibition. It was a little, it was a little, a four man event at Pebble beach. Yes. So I, I got to, I played, um, I played one year and then I got to play in the pro-am with Macro. Another year I played with Connors. It yeah, so that's where I first met you. And she dragged me there. I didn't want to go because I was 13. And I was like, so I was 13 when I met you. But she sat me down to have me watch her interview, Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe. Of course, John McEnroe showed up late. And Jimmy wanted to ditch the interview. And then my mom sat there and told the story about meeting his mom and how she instilled all her beliefs and thoughts and really helped my mom. And Jimmy stayed and waited for John. And my mom got the story. That's great. That's terrific. Yeah, the I remember. Funny, funny well. little story connection there, right? 
Absolutely. What about that oh. relationship on huh? Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe together? Jimmy Connors, I mean, McEnroe. Um, wow. You know, it's funny, just so you know, Ugi, um, some people study Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Some people study the Beatles and the Stones. I have my informal doctorate is in Connors and McEnroe. You have no idea how much I've watched, how much tape I've watched. Speaking Ugi, Joel <laughs> could go is... on for hours on this. He's I got like... my Max Ply. I got my Max Ply. That's kind of the Oh, the my gosh. Special. Every lefty have just like some men have to have a Porsche at one point in their life. Every lefty has to have a little go with this racket. Back now, have you awesome. have you played a whole set with that racket? In the last thirty five years, no. <laughs> not since All right, we're gonna have to go out and hit with both of those rackets. Oh my god, yeah. the T two thousand and the Max Fly. Yes. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. I so, well, I've got to go into one more thing, Joel. What made you fall in love with Jimmy Connors? I think for me, Jimmy Connors. Initially, I hated him. I thought he was a punk. I thought he was kind of a jerk. And I think he kind of showed me, you know, I'm very cerebral. I tend to be a little more more um, pensive and deliberate. And I think he brought a certain type of rocket fuel to ambition. He showed me that if you wanted to succeed, it was about hitting for the lines and putting your heart on your sleeve and really just throwing yourself out there. And it was kind of at the right time, at a certain time in my life, there were certain things going on in my own life and who I was. It's like, wow, he's an avatar. This guy is showing me what, what uh for what it's worth, just so you know, Macron is a year old older than further along. So Connors was older and he was also in the area. He lived in LA for many years. So mm-hmm. we see him practicing at UCLA. We knew about him getting his rackets strung at the same place that we got our rackets strung. And he was like the guy. He he made tennis look legitimate. You know, before him, it seems it's like in music terms, before Connors, everyone was a, a crooner. They were great. And I've come to know a lot of them too. I mean. Rod Laver, Ken Rosal, John Newcomb, Roy Emerson. These guys are unbelievable. But I'm, I'm a teenager at that point. And maybe I couldn't quite see their genius as vividly. And Connors is the guy in the 70s. He's the big tennis player of the he 70s. He was touchable. Yeah, and he was and he was visceral. It was mm-hmm. clear. He burst through the screen. It's like the actor who breaks through the wall to the audience who's grabbing you like, like Elvis in music or Marlon Brando in, in acting. It's like, mm-hmm. wow, this guy is bringing a whole other sound to it i mean if you watch connor's matches you hear the sound of his feet scuffling along and the footwork and the The hard work the intensity that's right the intensity intensity. right intensity and just the the total like super intense it it would be like the eyes you can see his eyes were just focused throughout the match and i think it was the first one who actually did that like really focused and he had it was on a mission every match of his life could you imagine if Nick Curious had Jimmy Connors intensity? Oof. Well, no, but so we'll, so we'll just have to settle for Nadal. I, mean, I Nadal, know. Yes, Nadal. Nadal. But I'm, I'm talking thing, yeah. about for the Generation Z right now, who they, all the kids love Nick Curious and how he's, even though he's been the bad boy, but you talk to 13-year-old boys, 12-year-old boys, like you were with Connors when you were a teenager watching him. They love Nick Curious. So well, I, I know you're giving me a look, but no, no. in Connor's time, it was Nastasi. It was Ilya Nastasi. But yeah. all yeah. the talented could hit every, could make the ball talk. And you think, oh, if Nastasi had half a kind of, you know, I guess this is the way life works. We all get. Exactly. All get, you all get something. Right. Well, okay. So this has been fabulous, but we got to end with our fantasy right. coaches. Oogie and I like to do this every week. We pick one fantasy coach for a female tennis player and one fantasy coach for a male tennis player. Sometimes we do 
tactical, mental, physical, and sometimes we just do one. So this week we're doing one for an American female tennis player going into the clay season, which has started now, and Mm -hmm. one fantasy coach for American male tennis player. So Joel, I can't wait to hear who you've picked. All right. So I did think about this after you told me. American male player. I thought of Max Cressy, who comes to net a lot, comes to net, plays a little different style than a lot of today's players. I thought, who who could help him a little? Who could help him some and bring some? And I thought the good news about Max Cressy, he understands sort of the um, a good amount of the emotional thing you need to be to be a net rusher, which is you got to be you're like a card counter. A net rusher doesn't mind getting passed. A net rusher's motto is time is on my side. Pass me at one all, try it at four all. You know, and he's yep. just going to keep applying that pressure. But I thought maybe what he could use is a little more of the nuances of of the of the of the movement of the guessing of the shot selection. So I'm going to give him Tony Roach. I'm going to give great left-handed Australian so, Tony Roach. Oh, as a I coach. love that pick. Some old school and, advice there from. Uh, but I want him Tony. to have it because Tony Roach. I, I've been lucky. I go to the, I've gone to this fantasy camp at John Newcomb's, and Roach has been one of the coaches, not just coaching us, but we all know that guy is a workhorse. He that is. guy's put you through the paces, and he's going to say, "All right, this is what we're going to do." And I'm going to give you this feed and you're going to need to hit the volley from here. You're going to hit the volley from there and you're going to put away this volley. And I think for Cressy, it's kind of like bringing yet more physicality to that net rushing. And so he gets gets more comfortable with the whole, the agility piece, right? The agility piece, because I think he's got kind of the, the cognitive piece, which is like, yeah, yeah. And just get more, more firmed up with it. And maybe a Mm -hmm. little more, a little more from the ground too. What do you think, Oogie? Well, I think it's a very uh, interesting pick. Um, plus, he's going to field right at home, right? Maxime Cressy. I mean, some French background right there. So for the French Open, he's going to be ready. Yeah, I love it. I I I got a little coaching advice from Tony Roach on a clay court, actually. In Florida, I played his player. He was It was a couple years ago. He was out on the tour with a player. I forget her name. Sorry. This was in the challengers, the dregs of the challengers, Joel and Oogie. Sometimes Tony Roach was there. there. It was only, it was freezing. It was Florida. Weird weather is in the spring. Maybe it was Alabama, Alabama or Florida. It was so cold. And there was Tony Roach and my mom, and that was it. And they were just watching us on this little stadium court. And I'm going like, Oh my gosh, this is like Tony Roach over in the corner, like sitting with nobody coaching his Aussie girl. And yeah, I ended up winning the match. Yeah, I ended up winning the match. And then afterwards he came up and said hi and gave me some coaching tips to keep going. So that's great. Yeah, he's he's like salt of the earth. And yeah. he still and he's tapped with the game. I mean, he's he's in Alabama. With a contemporary woman's player, yep. he's a, how today's game is playing. I mean, I'm not. He's not going to tell Cressy to hit the ball with a continental grip, oh. but he's going to be aware of the. And I've talked to. Um, I had a very nice talk once with Yvonne Lendl about their work together. So yeah, so that's now. Now you guys. Okay. Have, you have yeah. Yeah. yeah no. So, so Max Cressy, you need to call up Tony Roach. Okay, Oogie, who is your um, American male player? Yeah, let's let's round up the male. Um, kind of go with Taylor Fritz. I mean, he's. Such a big hitter from the ground. Um, he's already on a roll a bit, you know, uh, having won a couple of matches in Monte Carlo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going with with him for sure. His forehand is huge. He's got a lot of spin on it. So on clay, that's going to result in a lot of wins. Uh, 
Plus, I like his swag on the court. He's like, looks like he's no pressure on him all the time. Well, he's just on clay. He doesn't have pressure on him. <laughs> even on Wait, hard so courts. Do you, do you assign him a coach, or are you his coach? Oh yeah, yeah. no. Who's his yeah, coach? I have to coach him, but um, I picked another another swag guy, Gustavo Querten. I got Guga all over him, coaching him just to be keep keep, keep the swag going, hit hit balls from all over the place, left to right. I mean, Guga won three times the French Open, so he knows what what he's doing, and uh, you know he had a special situation with his brother, so he knows how to you know be uh, be cool in uh, super stress situations. So yeah, I'm got I'm going with these with these all two right, guys Taylor, for sure. Taylor Fritz and Gustavo Querton. That's right. That's the combo. Wow, I like that. That's fun. The Guga, the Slinky. It's a good yep. combo. Okay. Guga, so the yep. Slinky with the Lexalon. <laughs> Oogie, you were on the same wavelength. You're going to laugh. <laughs> okay. Nice. So my picks, and I'm not changing it because that's the part of the game, right? Okay. Yep. So I picked Ben Shelton as the American man. Lefty, 6'4", okay. learning how yeah. to play his game, exciting, light, nice, loose serve. And my fantasy coach was Gustavo Querton as well. Wow! Wow! You just want to see because you just want to see him bring back that uh, that shirt that he wore. That that yeah, the shirt crazy shirt. Well, <laughs> I was I was thinking about it, and then I was watching video, and I was like, okay, Gustavo Querton six three, Ben Shelton six four. Yes, lefty versus righty, but Gustavo knew how to play the whole court. And he knew yeah. how to defend and he knew how to attack the net. And I feel Ben at this time in his career could really use some help by Mr. Querton on the clay court. Wow. That's true. That's great. Well, and Google will keep him, keep him loose. Yeah, he'll keep them loose. He'll, it'll ha and they have similar personalities. Look, Gustavo is always smiling, loose and happy. Ben has been, he's like a Labrador puppy running after every ball. So I feel like they would gel very well. And Oogie, obviously you were thinking on the same wavelength as me. You know what? I had the same length and actually at the same time, I had like the opposite as well. You know what? I almost picked Thomas Mooster as well. Oh, that, oh that's good. Because, because that would have been like the total Mooster opposite. For like, Taylor Fritz. Tonight you eat pasta. I can just hear him say something like that, and you go to bed at eight. I mean, just like robotically saying, Fritz. you know, stuff Fritz. like that yeah, throughout for the Fritz. day. And for Taylor, it could work as well because you know sometimes if you're too alike, then maybe you know you don't get the maximum of the relationship. But maybe. whenever well, you is tricky, it's not always autobiography. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's true. It's how you mesh with the coach and and how you. Yeah have discussions and you know you have to be on the same exactly. wavelength right yeah. okay taylor is taylor is like super super chill and, and he's missing a couple of maybe tactical points very important maybe thomas yeah. mooster picked them and he's saying well, no do this do this and he's got a right. yeah, michael russell's a pretty good regiment guy yeah, yeah he is good I know. yeah i played with michael yeah, and, and, uh, and not and to so. we're not dissing on everybody's coach so we always no. say just to say we all love everybody's coach this is just fantasy right of course, I know Michael because we played together in Canada in cool. uh, futures and satellites back then. So he's he's super nice. I mean, I really liked him. And he has nothing to do with whoever's coaching the players right now. We're just oh, having fun, this is all fantasizing. You know, whoever yeah. we would you know pick with him. Okay, so Joel, American female player. All right. Okay, Jessica Pagula. Okay. And right. Really admire so much of the way she goes about her business, her work ethic. Her devotion. I obviously seen David Witt have a very strong relationship. Mm -hmm. I want her to get a little bit more what I would almost call special teams tactical diversity. Oh, I like that. 
So I hmm. want her to spend a little time with Martina Hingis because Martina Hingis is going to say to her, you know, those ground strokes are great. Why do you make it so hard on yourself? Why don't you just walk three steps into the court and hit a drop volley? That's a good special teams addition, Joel. You know, like I think, I think Pagula, she, she needs a little bit more of that kind of that X factor. I think I've come to see, and again, you guys tell me about this. What do the great players do who win things? Everybody has their patterns. But the super geniuses, they'll suddenly do something. And That's unexpected. Right. And that won't just win them one point. That'll almost win them 10 points. Because yes. I thought we were playing this for two hours. Where did that come from? And mm-hmm. is obviously great patterns, discipline, focus, flat heart. So I thought Hingis might give her a little bit. Why not? You know, and, and Hingis, you're already playing the doubles. Do this a little bit. Yeah, Maybe a little something extra. Doubles. Just something a little that they're not thinking. Keep them off balance. Why not a moon ball approach? Why not a rip and charge return? You know, kind of like the way in contemporary terms, Hingis will help her find a little of her own Carlos Alcaraz. I like that. That's a good one. Well, hey, and we all know Pagula has one of the best returns right now, so she could easily rip it and come in and put away a volley. Yeah, or just apply the pressure. The great thing about the rip and charge, and I'm a little more from the chip and charge, but it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think you tell me this, Oogie, if you were coaching someone, you still, even if you lose the point, you won something. That's right. You got a point. You should get a point two five, like a tax credit. That's true. I, I made you hit a. I made you hit a passing shot. So even if you, I mean, the best thing is when you get them to miss a passing shot. The fun thing is the volley winner, but and getting past is obviously the worst. Or missing a volley is the worst thing. But it's like I made them do something. I'm. I kind of got in right. their. It's kind of annoying, wasn't it? Got right. in their I'm, head. That's right. That's it. I'm teaching finance like every afternoon with my teenagers on the tennis course because I'm I'm always telling them I'm always telling them that guys you're investing. <laughs> like that's yes. a good investment. That point's a good investment because you just hit and charge. You go to the net. You get past whatever. You've put some pressure, and the next point maybe a double fault comes out or something like that. And in the middle of a rally, they miss a shot. Now so see that game. investment. Like, now that's you exactly what you were saying, Joel. That's exactly it. You serve in volley a couple of times. Now the net's a factor in the return. Exactly. If I know, if I, know that, yeah. volley, I should never hit a return to the net. Right, coaches? That's right. Yes. Yep. Agreed. A return okay, on the so, tape suddenly. Yep. So these fantasy coaches, they actually beca- could come to fruition. You know, special yeah, teams. Yeah. Put them in for the French. <laughs> so okay. Right. Oogie, who do you have? American female. Hey, I had to go with, I think she could break through this summer. Um and especially on clay right now in the next month and a half or so, it's Coco Goff. I think Coco's right there at that edge where she could just, you know, go through because she had a final at the French Open. So, I mean, I'm, she's close. Um, so, you know, with the experience of Justine Henin as the coach, oh. you know, you got to go oh. with Justine. Justine has won four times. Uh, you know, she's back home right now with her academy. She's not that far. So a little train ride and she gets to Paris. <laughs> and yeah, she's uh, she's incredible. Okay, so and what could Justine Henin do? You said her name better than me. What could Justine. she do to help Coco? Well, you know, like like she did when she played you in the final uh, in Austria. When we're <laughs> Oogie <together>. has experience. <laughs> I know. I didn't enjoy that final when she beat you. But, uh, you know, she to was To be fair, and... I had a uh, hip flexor strain, to be fair. I know. I no remember. No excuses, but. Hey, 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 hey. Bow to the locker. Come on, coach player. <laughs> that is so. Exactly. It's yeah. true. I mean, it's just. You okay, win so you what could she day. do to help Coco? I mean, just just with the you know her 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 tactics, just 
tactically, you know, strategically the night before, she could just have the great talk and improve that because sometimes Coco, a little bit like Jessica, they play alike. Every match is a little bit alike. You know, they, they go for their shots, they hit their strokes instead of looking at the other side of the net. Oh, okay. I'm playing this girl today. So oh, maybe I'm going to throw some of that or vary this and vary that. You know, they always go for the same serves and same return and booming cross court and like exactly like Joel was saying, you know, and in, in her in his pick, I mean, just get somebody like Martina Ingis, just to you know, you know, slice loop more okay, cross court angle. Because the good, the best example was Bianca Andreescu from Canada. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's for me. It's the perfect style of play because she can play against anybody and beat anybody. Not because she's playing great tennis, but because she's playing smart tennis. And a lot of people can do that because you don't you don't need to have the talent of a super Sabalenka stroke all over the place and whacking people off the court because almost nobody has that. But if you play smart, you can, you know, can work your way around a match, notice some, you know, some, some, some shots that the opponent were missing or not liking, then you exploit that and, you know, you get to where you want. Okay. What do you think of that pick, Joel? I think that's pretty interesting. I think, uh, I think it's interesting to see how they would connect. I love Justine and God, she talk about a, rare player i mean there's like like almost it's like a female roger federer at her best and exactly. and and the backhand it'd be interesting to see yeah it's interesting to think of that combination of her helping golf with some kind of like it's a little bit like the same thing like i said with hingis bagul some other tactical diversity mm-hmm. i was i was thinking though when you said coco golf i was thinking um i was gonna think of her like a few of, of some robert lansdorp time for the forehand well okay so i'm gonna do my pick and guys oogie and i have not talked since last week and we did not talk on this but okay my pick is coco goff okay but my fantasy coach okay we all know she has a forehand issue right i picked yannick noah because yannick noah had the speed he had the chip and he could charge the net his forehand was loopy but he made it work for him and Coco needs a little bit Yannick Noah magic to finish points off of the net more, not be so defensive on the baseline and get into trouble on her forehand. And okay, she's not going to move that grip over because everybody knows she needs to move it over and she hasn't done it and it might be too hard and too late now. Yannick Noah could provide some insight on how to use your athleticism better and create the angles and get to the net and put away the shots every time or maybe 70% of the time instead of being a defensive player like 65% of the time and relying on her speed mm-hmm. so it's funny so I had to, I had toyed with Lansdorff which is more like the the technical stroke reduction it's kind of like we're gonna we're gonna yes. chisel and your point is Yannick is gonna do I won't say the names of these people but in my journalistic career I've occasionally been lucky to talk with some of the great players about their game and got to know them well and of course it's always sensitive to talk to them about the weak shot, the mm-hmm. weak, weak your shot. weakness. But I've cut, they all, the champions all pretty much gave me the same answer. And I'll paraphrase it. What of it? In other words, it's kind of like, yeah, I get that this side isn't as good as the other yeah. side or my serve wasn't, or this shot wasn't good. So what? So what? Everything else was better. Yeah, that's right. So I knew how to, I knew how to manage it. So your point that's is right. get, get no to teach you. No, we're not going to, we're not trying to rebuild the farm. We're going to deploy it. Yes. This, with that exactly so i figure everybody's harping on our forehand let's figure out a way have her to win with that forehand 
because look, you look at the women on the tour, the athleticism, there's a lot of athletic women on the tour, same as athletic men. I'm not being sexist, but there are a lot of skilled tennis players. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Coco has used her athleticism to overcompensate for that forehand. Now it also gets her into trouble as we have all seen. But it's just what Joel said. If she can figure out how to get through it, who knows what could happen? Women's tennis is wide open. Well, she's also a very good volleyer. She yeah, plays and she she's what was she one in the world? Is she still one in the world right now? She's I don't one know. Of the best the world one of the best doubles players yeah. in the world. She needs yeah, to come her to and the Jessica net more. Her rank three yeah. and four. In so it's kind of what you said with Pagula. Use her neck game. Coco needs to use her neck game more breakthrough on the clay court she got to the finals but hey maybe if she played a little differently against Iga it wouldn't have been so fast you're right and well she, it won't be, it she won't probably be, I think it won't be next time she yeah, needs to yeah. use her forehand like more of a topspin uh, shot too as well you know we'll to go give higher her more time. instead of going yeah. lower exactly because you, you know you want to go of course you want to hit the ball but if you really topspin hard that's going to give her time to you know settle in the court and get her athleticism and She's going to be able to control the points. Yeah, and well, Yannick, no- Yannick Noah can actually uh, teach her how to dream of winning the French Open. You know the that's story? Even, that's a is, good one. Is, is yes. That, I know love the story, that, Ugi. right? Because Yannick mm-hmm. Noah dreamt the night before of the he final won. that he won. And he woke up and he's like, I won. And then it's like, what? It was a dream? And then he believed everything in the in his dream. And, and he, he won. actually beat Mats Wielander that day. So. Yeah, I love it. Okay, guys. Well, I I love all our picks. I think they are really good. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna end this podcast with a quote of the day. Oogie and I always have a quote on the day. It's honor of Joel for his love of Jimmy Connors. The quote is, "I never lost a tennis match. I just ran out of time." How I love it? Th- how many times do you think of that when you play a match? I just ran out of time, right? Yeah, right I didn't lose. Not- Right. I thought we were playing four out of seven today. Yeah. What happened? Five out of so, nine. Yeah, that's great. So that's the quote of the day. I never lost a tennis match. I ran out of time. Thank Excellent. you, Joel, for joining us. Thank you both. Great to be with you. It was so fun. Thank you, Oogie. This has that's been awesome. Serving Aces with Alexander Stevenson. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, at Alexander Stevenson, at Ooglevadier. And have a great day, everybody. See you next time. See you next time.